The debrief is a production of faculty at the National Security Affairs Department at the U.S. Naval War College. The views presented here are those of the speakers and do not represent the positions of the Department of Defense or any of its components. Welcome to The Debrief, a production of faculty members affiliated with the National Security Affairs Department at the U.S. Naval War College. I'm your co-host, Theo Milanopoulos. The State Department is the oldest cabinet-level agency in the U.S. government, with over 250 diplomatic posts worldwide and 70 to 80,000 employees, about half of whom are U.S. citizens. The State Department's structure and career tracks for our nation's diplomats can sometimes be opaque in understanding the full range of missions and activities they undertake at home and abroad. Here to help us shed light on these topics are Dr. Mary Thompson-Jones, Professor and Chair of Women in Diplomacy and National Security, and a retired Senior Foreign Service Officer, and Walt Brownler, Minister Counselor in the Senior Foreign Service and Professor of National Security Affairs here at the Naval War College. Mary, Walt, welcome to The Debrief. Thanks, Theo. Mary, let's start with you. Um, you and Walt have over 20 years of experience uh, as Foreign Service Officers and specifically as Public Diplomacy Officers. Um, I'm wondering if you could help us understand what Public Diplomacy is and how it fits within the broader career tracks within the Foreign Service. Sure. Uh, traditionally, nation states conducted diplomacy relating to governments and other governments, foreign ministers relating to the Secretary of State on down. But about a century ago, some countries, particularly countries with Western democratic traditions, thought it would be important to reach beyond governments to the populace, to the people at large, on the theory that uh, the public have an impact and policy comes from the bottom up. So the British Council, the Alliance Francaise, several other uh, countries began. And they used a combination of what is called soft and hard diplomacy. The easy part is to have a cultural institute, to teach the language, to produce musical productions, to have artistic exhibitions, to give foreign audiences a chance to learn more about what your own home country is like. The harder part is to have an engagement on policy issues. That's done through journalism, through speakers' programs, by bringing foreign policy experts to another country, uh, to engage with opinion leaders. These could be journalists or academicians or pollsters, uh, religious leaders. It depends on the country, of course, and on who's influential and who's an opinion leader. I don't know, Walt, you want to add anything to that? Yeah, we joke sometimes that there's private diplomacy, which is your traditional closed-door diplomacy, hammering out deals, trade agreements, and everything else. And everything else is public diplomacy. And I think, like Mary mentioned, it's much more important when you have uh, you know, democracies engaging with one another. And from that ground up, right, uh, mm -hmm. there's all parts of society that we want to reach. And pl public diplomacy is a key part of getting at those and influencing them um, and explaining for us what America is all about. Now, Mary, um, you mentioned that public diplomacy is one of several career tracks that are available to foreign service officers. I'm curious about what those other tracks are and how you decided to go in uh, the public diplomacy uh, uh, field. Sure. Um, well, there are five career tracks, and perhaps the most important and least appreciated is the consular track. Uh, American embassies exist first and foremost to help American citizens. Americans are everywhere, and they work, 
they study, they have businesses, they uh, have lots of reasons to be abroad, and American citizens have many needs, so consular services are there to help them. I have known colleagues in the consular section who have been almost like first responders after a hotel fire, after airplane crashes, sometimes gruesome work helping to identify bodies, uh, sometimes notifying next of kin, helping families who are worried about people overseas. Uh, this is in addition to the more generally known part of consular work, which is issuing visas to foreigners who would like to come and visit or work in the United States or study in the United States. Um, so I think consular work is the most important. The one most people think about is political track. Um, at one point, perhaps, the political track was the fast track to becoming an ambassador. Uh, I don't think that's necessarily the case anymore. Political officers track parliamentarians. They track what's happening in government and in society, those parts of society that influence government. They do a lot of reporting back to Washington to make sure that policymakers in the United States have the most up-to-date information about their country in question. Uh, economic officers have the portfolio that's probably grown the most because it covers science, the environment, climate change, as well as traditional hard economic topics, uh, both economic uh, um, finance and uh, monetary issues, whether a country's um, economic health is improving, declining, steady state. This matters greatly in terms of U.S. policy orientation. Uh, and then there's also the administrative track. These are the unsung heroes that run the embassy. They handle everything from the motor pool, the char force, the uh, nurse practitioners, the keeping the lights on, keeping um, transportation working so that everyone at an embassy is able to do the job they've been asked to do. Great. Now, Walt, um, there's a certain analogy between the ranks that are uh, within the Foreign Service and those that uniformed military officers uh, uh, participate in their profession. Um, I'm wondering if you could help us understand how Foreign Service officers are commissioned, how they uh, are promoted, uh, and, and how they fit in the broader set of employees at the State Department, because not all State Department employees, as I understand it, are Foreign Service officers. So could you help us un unpack that a little bit? Yeah, sure. So. Like you mentioned, uh, foreign service officers, just like military officers, are commissioned officers of the United States. Uh, almost anyone can become a foreign service officer. The only two ironclad requirements are that you have to be 21 years of age and have a high school diploma. Uh, and then from that point on, you take a test. Uh, they offer it several times a year. It's like uh, SAT on steroids. Uh, it's, it takes many, many hours. And they take a certain top percentage of the people who pass that written test, and they offer them oral interviews. And you go for a day-long process, usually in Washington, D.C., and you have a group interview, you have individual interviews, you have all sorts of interviews, and from those people, they offer them conditional offers of employment, uh, a potential commission. Uh, if you're selected, you still have to get a security clearance, have a health clearance. Every Foreign Service officer must start out as worldwide available. Um, uh, financial suitability clearance, all sorts of things. Um, and then, if you're lucky, you get put on a list and you may join an incoming class at the U.S. Foreign Service. Uh, just to be different, uh, the military, of course, starts out with uh, their officers as 01s, 02s, 03s, 04s, 05s, 06s. 
we start off FS 06, 05, 04, 03, 02, 01. Uh, so it's just kind of the inverse from 1 to 6 or 6 to 1. Uh, like the military, we start off at company grade or uh, junior grade officers. So if, if you start off as an 06, uh, you have administrative promotion from 06 to 05 to 04, and then it gets competitive. Yeah, and just like the military, you're, you're ranked, you're racked and stacked, as it will. Uh, and then depending on how many promotions are available, you you know, may get them every few years, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, beyond that, so once you get to the O1, so our equivalent of a, an O6, you know, a colonel or a captain in the Navy, uh, you can cross the threshold, they say, to the senior foreign service. And those are our general officer or flag officer equivalents. And this is where most of our ambassadors, our career ambassadors come from, some of our consuls general, um, and then back in Washington, uh, people like deputy assistant secretaries of state, uh, et cetera. Uh, and those are kind of the, the senior ranks of the Foreign Service. Could I just add one small point, which is the importance of language. And I know you and I both have had lots of language training in the mm -hmm. course of our careers. Uh, many of the positions are language designated. And we are trained sometimes in hard languages for up to two years uh, in order to be able to interact with foreign audiences, to do the kind of thing that we are doing now with Uthio, but in a foreign language and uh, to be able to explain and discuss and defend U.S. foreign policy. And that's a real value added in the Foreign Service, and in addition to, of course, the, all the other requirements that Walt mentioned. So I guess we can't substitute this conversation into Google Translate. Um, not, yet. not yet. Not yet, not <laughs> yet. It's coming. <laughs> um, uh, Mary, um, a lot of the center of gravity for the State Department may seem like it's in Foggy Bottom in Washington, where the Department of State is headquartered. Um, but it seems to also be taking place at the 250-odd diplomatic posts uh, uh, abroad. I was wondering if you could help us understand what the country team looks like uh, in, the, in abroad uh, and who comprises that country team, whether that involves interagency representatives with whom uh, one is engaging, and how uh, embassies, consulates, and other offices uh, represent U.S. interests abroad. Sure. Um, well, I like to explain to students that the country team is the interagency taken and placed in the host country, whichever that one might be. And the composition of the country team can vary greatly. Uh, as an interagency group, it is headed by the ambassador who has chief of mission authority. This has some meaning and some history. He or she has a letter of credence. They have presented their credentials to the foreign minister or to the head of state of the country in question. This sometimes is a very big deal, very ceremonial, very formal, depending on the country. Uh, but that ambassador has the authority over all other agencies. And the State Department is often a minority at a country team meeting. Some large countries, such as well, Japan, Mexico, Moscow, um, South Africa, may have two dozen or even three dozen U.S. federal agencies represented around a country team table. And these can range from agencies that you can imagine and heard of, certainly Department of Defense, Defense Attaché would be at this table, uh, but also obscure federal agencies. Uh, when I worked in Guatemala, we had APHIS, which is the Animal Plant Health Inspection Service. They had a big job in Guatemala, and they had a seat at the table as well. So one corny but perhaps useful way to 
imagine the country team is as a circus, and the ambassador is the ringmaster, and there are different acts. There's the acrobats, there's the horses, there's the other uh, ones involved. I won't get into the clowns. <laughs> but uh, the, the ambassador is in charge of the country team and can wield it, can task it, uh, and of course, all of these individuals report back to their home agencies, but they serve at the pleasure of the ambassador and must meet the requirements of the individual embassy involved. Great. And it works generally very well, yeah. right? Because there is a clear line of authority, uh, chief admission authority that you talk about. Um, everyone knows who's really in charge. Um, whereas back in Washington, um, when you're using uh, the interagency process, a lot of times there are multiple masters, so to speak, right? Uh, people have different bosses that they have to be accountable to, and it can be a little messier or a little bit more drawn out. Um, Mary, can I just follow up very quickly um, on the difference between that chief of mission authority that's delegated or, or given to the ambassador uh, and how that interacts with uh, the difference between political, politically appointed individuals who are in these roles and those who are career uh, uh, foreign service officers that ascend to these roles? Sure. Um, yes, um, Walt and I are both career, or I was until I retired, career senior foreign service officers. And we came up through the ranks through all the tests and hoops that, that Walt talked about a moment ago. The other route and the fast track route to becoming an ambassador is to be a political appointee. Um, these people are selected for a variety of reasons. Sometimes it's because they have been key donors, key bundlers uh, during a campaign, and it is in fact a reward for services rendered. Other times they are career public servants, people who've served on the NSC. Janan Walker was one example. She was a protege of Tony Lakes, and she had spent many years working in government in Washington. She became an ambassador. Um, former members of Congress, former senators, Huntsman, who John Huntsman, who went to China, uh, long ago Walter Mondale in Japan, others. So um, it's hard to generalize about political appointees, but one thing that is true is that they are not from the ranks and files of the Foreign Service. They often are less familiar with the inner workings of the State Department and how to run an embassy. For this reason, they are usually ably assisted by a deputy chief of mission who is always a career Foreign Service officer who helps with the day-to-day -day running of the embassy. Great. Walt, your most recent posting was in Ukraine. Mm -hmm. And I was wondering if you could share with our audience uh, uh, what the, your experience was like to be there uh, on the eve of the Russian invasion in February 2022. Absolutely. Uh, so my family and I arrived in Ukraine in 2020. Uh, we knew it was going to be a busy posting. Of course, Russia initially invaded Ukraine, uh, occupied Crimea illegally, and you know, fomented uh, things in the eastern part of Ukraine uh, in 2014. Uh, so, you know, already, you know, you start from a challenging position. We've been working with the government of Ukraine, the people of Ukraine, for years uh, with security assistance programs, uh, using things like the National Guard State Partnership Program to train their military, reform their military, uh, to help them modernize and fight this threat that they had throughout the country. Uh, we've also been, we'd also been working with them to fight corruption, uh, to improve the rule of law, uh, to strengthen the judiciary, etc. But, uh, as you allude to, um, Throughout 2021, we see this buildup of Russian forces along Ukraine's borders. 
so the United States, along with its partners and allies, uh, we start sounding the alarm. Uh, we make very public some of the intelligence that we have, saying that, hey, look, this is not a normal military exercise that Russia is carrying out, but this is a potential invasion plan. Uh, you know, famously, you know, there are satellite photos of not just troops and equipment along the borders, but blood banks, for instance, things that you don't normally have uh, just for an exercise, right? And things that indicate this may be a real expansion of Russia's war in Ukraine. Uh, intense negotiations uh, play out between the United States, other partners, NATO, Russia, uh, throughout 2021. Uh, things really start coming to a head at the end of 2021 uh, into early 2022. Uh, at that point, it's pretty clear. We don't know when exactly, but that Russia is going to move. There is going to be a massive incursion into Ukraine. Uh, so we are working 24 hours a day trying to get uh, defensive weapons into Ukraine, uh, trying to you know, use every international venue that we can to denounce this, to prevent it or at the very least delay it so the Ukrainians could have um, more of a fighting chance uh, for any potential invasion expansion. Um, at the embassy, uh, we see a ton of visitors. You know, we see the director of the CIA coming in. We see the Secretary of State coming in. We see members of Congress coming in, um, all showing their support for Ukraine. And then at every single juncture, figuring out tangible steps that we can better prepare uh, Ukraine for you know, what we think is going to happen. Uh, come January, February of last year, 2022, uh, we see the writing on the wall, and the State Department and the White House decide to evacuate our embassy in Ukraine. So uh, you know, people with families uh, go back to Washington, D.C. Uh, there's a skeleton crew at the embassy, uh, maybe a dozen or so people who remain at first at the embassy and then move to uh, western Ukraine, to Lviv, for a short period of time. And then just as uh, Russia looks like it's about to invade, they go across the border to Poland. And from February until May of last year, we had a, a sort of shadow embassy, um, I'm not sure what the technical term is, uh, operating out of Zeszów, Poland, southeastern Poland. Uh, you know, I think everyone remembers you know, kind of the horrific scenes on the news of this massive invasion that took place. Uh, but diplomacy is still going on. You know, we have people you know, traveling to the border every day for things that need to be done in person. Uh, a lot of communication going back and forth, getting Ukrainians what they need as far as security support. Um, you know, organizing humanitarian uh, assistance for Ukrainians in need, uh, taking a look at all the refugees uh, that are coming across the border, et cetera, uh, just a multitude of issues that the embassy was still very much engaged on. Uh, the White House was very clear that there would be no U.S. boots on the ground in Ukraine. They didn't want to inflame the conflict, uh, you know, potentially sparking some sort of wider you know, war, heaven forbid, a world war. Uh, but in May, uh, our diplomats cross the border and they go back to Kyiv. Uh, so we are able to reopen the embassy. Uh, before the war, our embassy in Ukraine was the third largest in Europe, uh, about 200 or so Americans, about 500, 600 or so Ukrainians uh, supporting you know, all of our diplomatic efforts throughout Ukraine. Uh, I think in May or June, uh, we were able to reopen with about 50 or so Americans back at the embassy. Uh, and from there, it's only grown. Uh, so yeah, it's a, uh, it's a very difficult time uh, in a place that, um, you know, it was fraught with all sorts of challenges. But to me, it's amazing that our diplomacy never really stopped, 
right? Uh, our presence had to shift across the border for a short period of time, uh, but we came back as soon as we could. And I think that's important, not only materially in the way that we've been able to support Ukraine, uh, but also symbolically, uh, that we were gone, um, you know, as little as we could be. And we're always very close, very nearby, and then right back in as soon as we could be uh, to support uh, the government of Ukraine and the Ukrainian people uh, to what we see as really this you know, potential threat, not just to Ukraine, but to freedom and democracy in Europe. Mary, you served in a, uh, a different uh, European country, and that was as chief of mission at the embassy in the Czech Republic. Um, I was wondering if you could uh, uh, help us understand kind of what the day-to-day -day responsibilities of the chief of mission are, uh, and if there are any particular highlights uh, uh, when you were serving in Prague. Sure. Well, I'm a good example of the what happens when uh, ambassadors are trapped in Washington in the approval process and not um, able to go to the country they've been designated to go to. Uh, I was the deputy chief of mission, and the Czech Republic has political appointees usually because a very pleasant country, nice place to go, beautiful residence. And I served for a while under uh, a political appointee from the Bush administration, uh, a Republican. We had an election. Obama came into office. Of course, all uh, political appointees uh, returned to Washington. And I became what is called a charge d'affaires ad interim. I didn't expect to be doing this very long. Uh, I was very happy for the opportunity. but. Week past week, month past month. Um, I at one point had the record as the last man standing, 18 months as charge. That since has been exceeded. But um, this is because of the requirement that the Senate uh, give consent and approval for all ambassadorial nominations. And the people that were nominated by Obama had been stuck in this process for a large variety of reasons. Um, it was my second tour to Prague. I got the job as DCM in part because I did have the Czech language at one point. I was the humble assistant information officer back in the day, and I worked on press and culture. And my biggest example of what public diplomacy can do uh, is based on my experience there when Václav Havel became president. He was a very famous dissident. He was also a playwright. This is a country in which culture mattered greatly. And understanding the nuances of whatever country you've been assigned to is super important. And things that resonate in one country might fall flat in another country. But Havel was the man. And in addition to being president of his country, he was also the president of the International Pen Society. And he asked, uh, when the conference was held and hosted in Prague by him, if we would please bring the American playwright Arthur Miller. Arthur Miller is the author of The Crucible, among many other plays and other works he did. And that is particularly meaningful in a post-communist country. It's set in Salem, Massachusetts, just up the road from here, during the Salem Witch Trials, but a lot there were a lot of analogies to some of the darkest times under communism. So Arthur Miller was very glad to come, and I had very minor roles escorting him in the elevator and getting him where he needed to be. But the sensation that he made and the impact that he had was extraordinary. 
He was on every front page. Journalists were uh, just clamoring for interviews. He and Havel hobnobbed together a bit, and Czechs loved that. And you could ask, well, well and good, Mary, you know, the good times were had by all. Um, how does that impact foreign policy? And the answer is that you're building a foundation of trust, something we call, consider mutual understanding. You're demonstrating to foreign audiences that you take them seriously and that you have commonality. And years later, when you have the hard ask, you want them to send troops to Afghanistan or Iraq, and you meet people, and they were there, and they remember that time, and they might have been students then, and now they're ministers of defense, what have you. You've built a foundation, and you've shown a different side of American life, something that, at least in the case of the Czech Republic, was much admired and respected, and you've created a connection. And that's really the whole point of diplomacy. It's beyond government to government. It's the human aspect. It's open. We're not intelligence officers, although we deal with some of the same sources sometimes, but we're in the open. And what we're looking to do always is to engage with local people and to make that connection. And that's the worth, in my view, of diplomacy. Well, Mary, I think you've got a great article on playwright diplomacy uh, uh, to <laughs> sure. be coming uh, since all the world is a stage, as uh, one of the more famous playwrights reminds us. Um, Walt, um, a lot of what the State Department does might be invisible to the eyes of not only the American public, but also to those in government agencies that uh, operate outside of Foggy Bottom and the diplomatic posts abroad. Um, I was wondering if, if there's anything you could tell us that that our viewers might think is surprising about the way that diplomacy unfolds, um, and any, if there's anything that they could learn about the State Department more broadly that maybe wouldn't hit the headlines. Sure. Uh, like you're alluding to, um, you know, even though diplomacy is, is a kind of power, it's hard to measure, right? Um, some of our most successful efforts are maybe a war that didn't happen or a trade dispute that didn't occur. Right? And these are hard to prove. Right? How, how can you say that oh, it was necessarily this thing? Right? Or uh, these actions that we took over many years, right? these relationships, this social capital that was built that caused this thing you know, to go be peaceful or whatever else. And that's hard to do. Um, we joke sometimes that the most successful diplomacy is, is boring. It's slow. It's a slog. Right? It's, it's as unsexy as possible. Right? It doesn't make big news headlines. And that's kind of by design. Right? Uh, now, that said, there are times when you, as Mary alludes to, you call upon that hard ask, right? And, and, you know, we, and these are parts of diplomacy that intersect with the other levels of levers of power, right? Whether it be the uh, I in dime, you know, information or intelligence or M, you know, the military bits or E, the economic bits, right? It's not just the diplomacy, but these, all, these things, they interweave with one another. Uh, one example that I had uh, was I was in, in a country uh, working in a public diplomacy role, and there was a coup. You know, the, the military took over the government, and this caught everyone by surprise. You know, uh, and you know, slowly uh, but surely, all of the TV stations were being shut down one by one, and we felt it very important as the United States, uh, as a big voice in this country and in the region, uh, you know, to make our. Um, 
views known, right? that this was, we were not complicit in this coup and you know, that democracy needed to be restored. Um, because we had some great relationships with some of the uh, remaining media institutions uh, and even the, some of the international ones, I remember going with our ambassador, uh, you know, screaming down the street to get into these studios and do live, you know, two-minute stand-up interviews, one after another, getting our official position out there so that the world knew how we stood uh, on this recent coup. Uh, denouncing it, calling for a return to democracy, et cetera. And literally, as we were departing the building to go back to the embassy, we see uh, this nation's army coming to shut down those stations uh, because we had been successful in doing so. Mm -hmm. uh, and I mean, this is an important part. It's, it's good for the world to know where America stands, and our diplomacy is part of that. Uh, uh, because you know, not only is it important for that country, but it sends a signal to others as well, right? That um, we are a nation of laws, we are a nation of democracy, and we will uphold those values, um, you know, certainly in our own country, uh, and then also, you know, uh, broadcast them out for all to see. Well, I think I will quote you, Walt, when I tell my students that the best diplomacy is boring diplomacy. Um, uh, thank you both for joining us here on The Debrief. Uh, uh, I found this conversation fascinating, and as, as I'm sure our, our students uh, and viewers will as well. Um, and uh, we will see you next time. Thank you, Theo. Thanks, Theo.